Coming up on the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. What folks oftentimes miss is that if we are eating in a way that is stressful, then the liver will still dump plenty of glucose into our system if if it's sensing that we're we are under stress and this is what interestingly where under eating eating too in, in, infrequently um I'm a big fan of of time restricted eating and whatnot but all of these things can be stressors and right. when we start daisy chaining you know low carb plus intermittent fasting plus one meal a day like at something that could have been, and, and again, it depends on the person. Like if you were 70 pounds overweight, type B computer programmer, pretty sedentary, that might be a great protocol until you get down to the level of leanness that you are at now. And then that is maladaptive now. Like you might need to eat more, more frequently to, um, to just uh, tell your body like, Hey, we're good. Like we're not actually starving. Like we're, right. we're plenty of food is coming in and we don't need to be in a stress state and whatnot. And so those are the things then that I, I think you start looking at. And it, it's funny this, uh, I don't agree with a ton of the repeat stuff, but I, I think that they're onto something and that a lot of folks end up under eating. And this is, a, you know, in this weird circularity deal, low carb is really easy to under eat on which is one of the benefits of yeah. using it as a tool to, to lose body fat initially, you know, and to, uh, uh, to potentially restore metabolic health. But if it's taken too far, then it, it, it could be maladaptive for the individual for sure. Hello, and welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I'm Brian Grin, and I'm here to give you actionable tips to get your body back to what it once was 5, 10, even 15 years ago. Each week, I'll give you an in-depth interview with a health expert from around the world to cut through the fluff and get you long-term sustainable results. This week, I interviewed the New York Times bestselling author of Paleo Solution and Wired to Eat, podcast host of Healthy Rebellion Radio, and co-founder of LMNT, Rob Wolf. We discuss Rob's current diet, along with advantages of tracking HRV, the problems with under-eating, health markers to optimize, evaluating my own blood work, along with the importance of minerals, and is one tip to get your body back to what it once was. This was my second time around with Rob. Really enjoyed the interview. I hope you do too. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show. All right. Welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. My name is Brian Grin. And for a second time around, I have Rob Wolf on. Welcome to the show. Great to be back. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. I think I was looking back last time you came on, it was August of 2021. So it's been, yeah, like a year and a half. Um, okay. So what my first question would be is, um, how are things going since then? I mean, we talked last, uh, anything new coming out on the horizon for yourself? Um, uh, just to let people know. I, you know, we moved to rural Montana, which we were discussing my, my abysmal internet, uh, uh, before, um, getting that, uh, you know, pressing play on this thing. So that's fairly new. Um, really enjoying the area. My kids like it. My wife likes it. They did not enjoy Texas all that much. The, the, uh, everybody grew up in the mountains, basically that, uh, that part of my family. And so, although Texas is awesome, the, uh, relative flatness and relative heat and humidity were not winners for my family. When my kids 
found out that it snows in Texas about once every 30 years, they were like, nah, this is not going to work. So, um, fortunately everybody stuck with me and didn't abandon me. And, and, uh, we're in, we're in the Kalispell area of Montana and everything's going really well. Great. Yeah. And, uh, and I was just thinking like you wrote the book, the paleo solution, right? Uh, that was that your first book, right? That was the first one, then Wired to Eat, and then uh, Sacred Cow is the most recent one, which uh, deals with the kind of health, environmental, and ethical considerations of a meat-inclusive food system. Yeah. Got it. And I guess my question would be, because like, you know, you've been in the health game for a while now, including myself as well. Have, like, since you wrote that first book, like, what, how is your view, has it changed and, and evolved over time? And I'm just curious to know, like, because um, you're just seeing this a lot with you know, it happens obviously with everyone, I think to some degree, but what has changed and and in what way? Well, the world has definitely gotten crazy. I mean, (laughs) crazier, um, you know, there, and and there's all kinds of like political, political landmines that one could step in with, with that. But, um, I guess one thing that I've, I've noticed when, when I hit the scene pretty, pretty early, like my blog went up the end of 2006 at robwolf.com. And I, I just, um, I didn't really have a plan for it other than, uh, topics that I found interesting that I thought might be helpful to people I would start writing, uh, about, and it was quite different than say, like, uh, if you look at Mark, Mark Sisson had a plan for what he was doing. Like he, right. he would cover these very specific topics and he did a phenomenal job, but he had a plan towards like, um, uh, monetizing what he was up to and kind of aggregating uh, bandwidth and everything, which is really smart. I didn't have the wherewithal to to do that, but I I ended up developing a really high traffic website. Like I, I there was a point where I, I had a remarkable amount of traffic to my website, and I think it was because there there was this time when Google rewarded people doing original content that was valuable to folks and that has subsequently changed in some really interesting ways but the the there was a time when i i think that one could uh have a pretty good footprint in this health and wellness space by just earnestly wanting to help people and being curious and you know getting in and and creating some some ostensibly good work um one thing that i've noticed that has changed is if you really want to garner some bandwidth uh the algorithms whether we're talking about uh facebook or instagram or uh, t- twitter to a lesser degree i believe but um controversy and extremism wins like mm. the more over the top ridiculous crap that you can slap against the wall it it, it seems like the better that things do right. and um I can be a knucklehead and I can get into, you know, spirited debates and and stuff like that, but I just can't do the like, um, this is the one and only way to eat and everything else sucks. And, you know, there's no nuance in the world. And I, I just can't do that. And, uh, or I can't do it. Well, it, it just, the part of my soul dies even contemplating doing that. So that's been a really big shift. And I, I still think I've, I've been able to maintain some relevancy, just trying to do good brick and mortar basic, you know, like here's a new study and here's what it means, or maybe, uh, uh you know, some insight into different, um, health topics or what have you, but it is one thing that has really changed is that the, the landscape of growing and building an online business and, and having, you know, reach in an online format 
has shifted to reward people who are extreme and dogmatic. And um, that's been weird. And I'm not entirely sure how to navigate that. Like part of me is, has been of the mind to put a gone fishing sign on all of my front facing, you know, web interface and just be done, you know, and I, but uh, I still feel like I help some folks. I still feel like I've got a, a few original ideas that I, I want to, flesh out and see if I can get out into the world. And, and so I, I don't know if that hundred percent answers your question, but that, that has definitely been a profound change from when I first landed in the, the online arena where just simply uh, earnestly trying to help people and being curious and trying to generate some original content. That was enough to have a good footprint and to, to make a difference. Whereas now you seem to need to do all kinds of kind of weird, ridiculous stuff to really have an impact. Yeah, no, I, that totally makes sense. And it's interesting. Um, you talk about being sort of on extremes and I, I think you're sort of seeing that like within the health space where, gosh, are, you know, you gotta be a certain, you have to eat a certain way, right? Like, are you a carnivore or are you a vegetarian? And it's like, it's, it's like extremists on one end or the other. And it, now you're seeing it a little bit where it's getting dialed back a little bit. I don't know what your thought is on that. Like where, you know, for example, even for myself, like I was fairly low carb and fasting for a while. I've been doing some self-experimentation and in introducing some whole food carbs. And you're seeing that with like, you know, Saladino and some others. Um, <clears throat> I guess, what is your, what is your thought on that and how, you know, I guess what's the landscape of eating as far as is, is are people just more confused or, or like, um, I don't know, I guess, wh what are your thoughts around, you know, sort of being on one end of the spectrum or just lie, laying right in the middle? <laughs> Man, uh, I think the really cool thing is that unlike any other time in history, we have access to information and a process of self-experimentation that you can unravel things that we, we would even like 10 years ago, I wouldn't have, have thought of unraveling. And, you know, that that's kind of a funny piece. Like my diet has shifted probably a bit more carnivore leaning over time, mainly because I, I saw some people like, uh, Jordan Peterson, Michaela Peterson, like, I don't know if you can see, but like, I have some rheumatoid arthritis in, in part of a hand and, yeah. and, uh, I had a pretty good flare at the beginning of this year. Like I had to go on some prednisone and it would, I, I wasn't sure if we were going to be able to stomp the thing back. And I realized that, uh, dairy, was causing that. Mm. And so I, and it's funny because dairy doesn't cause blood sugar issues for me. It doesn't overtly seem to cause gut issues, but I clearly, it, it, when I, upon removal, like a bunch of hand problems that I had ended up resolving. So, mm. uh, and I noticed that some GI problems related to like fiber and you know, plants basically like broccoli and kale and spinach and stuff like that. Like I just don't do that well with it. Mm. And I've never really done that well with it, but it, it's been this thing where it's like, oh, you should eat a lot of vegetables. And that always made sense to me. So I've kind of gone the opposite direction, but per, perhaps of, of what you've done. And I've seen a health improvement, but what was cool about that is it was just some simple experimentation. Like I just tinkered with it and, you know, do I look, feel and perform better? Yes. Okay, great. Well then keep doing what you're doing. If you don't, like if you see some retrograde performance or you don't feel as good, then maybe we should try something different. And I I've seen both on the, the uh, carnivore at low carb and the vegan side of this story, 
where people will religiously attach themselves to something and that that dietary approach isn't working and their health is clearly failing. It's clearly going in a bad direction, but they're so like wedded to this idea that they can't let go of it. So I do think that there are more options, more ideas, more, you know, differing opinions than there has ever been. But then when you look out at the landscape of, of the world that we exist in, there are people that thrive in all of those different kind of ecological niches, you know? And so what that tells me is that although there's a lot of commonality with folks, there's oftentimes some remarkable differences too. And so um, when I'm more hopeful, I, I envision a world where people are able to customize what they're doing and they, they can find a community that can help support them in that, that process. Maybe it's a, you know, like the, the circle I, I tend to travel in is a little more on the low carb paleo keto carnivore scene. Um, and so we, we do, I think a pretty good job of supporting people in, in something like that. And then maybe somebody else finds that, uh, uh, you know, uh, if it fits your macros kind of deal, like they don't need to worry so much about the composition of the food, just but to be very steely eyed about the macronutrient ratios. And they do really well with that. So I, I think that there's a cool opportunity that we can help customize just about anybody's needs for what they have going on. Like there's, there's something that will fit somebody or we can do iterations of it and whatnot. But what is kind of weird about that again, is just that the, uh, the kind of extremism that that pops up you know it's if you get really deep into the the legit carnivore scene it's like if you want to have like we this uh rural montana area has amazing apples like in the fall <laughs> oh wow the apples are just off the chain god they're so good and uh i do pretty well eating a little bit of apples i don't, I don't do a ton of them but like i'll, I'll eat them raw I'll, I'll stew them i'll make some apple sauce out of them mm. and by god uh, one i feel pretty good with that and then two i would say even if i took a little bit of a health hit it's like okay every fall i'm still gonna have some apples because god damn they taste good you know and right. and uh but there are folks in the uh, the carnivore scene. They're like, "Well, plants are trying to kill you, and this and that and the other." And it, and it's kind of kind of ridiculous. Um, so uh, uh, again, I just think that there's a cool opportunity that um, if people need to, if they have some health issues or they're trying to optimize their performance, health, longevity kind of parameters or whatnot, there's so many cool options to experiment with. I think the danger there, though, is. Like the real power is just main, remaining objective about what you're assessing. You know, it's it's like right. to you if you do CrossFit, like do your CrossFit wads go better? Is your recovery better? If you track sleep, is your sleep improving and stuff like that? Like that's all good. Those are great measurable things that tell us that we're on a good good you know path. And then if the flip side of that is happening, if we aren't sleeping well, if we're not recovering, if we have retrograde performance then we should probably reassess what we're doing nutritionally and look at our lifestyle and whatnot. And I, I think that there's kind of a unique opportunity in history that we've never had before because we do have access to all this information and all these different ideas and whatnot. But um, I maybe um, when I get inbound emails from folks asking questions, one of the big ones that I get is kind of career path. Like what should I become a health coach? Should I do this? Should I do that? Like I get a lot of questions related to that. And the other one is I'm really confused because 
I listened to like T. Colin Campbell talk about veganism in the China study, and it seems really compelling. And then I listened to Dr. Sean Baker and like, he's big and strong and jacked and, you know, and it, <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it, it, and I think that what people need to do is, is just, uh, figure out what they want to achieve out of their health and wellness, and then pick something and have some quantifiable benchmarks. Like, like for me, I have some, uh, performance metrics around what I do with Brazilian jiu-jitsu, uh, both strength and kind of cardiovascular capacity. And, and then just how I sleep. Like I, I do track my HRV every morning. And, um, so long as everything continues to look pretty good with that, then I keep doing largely the same thing. Every once in a while I do something different. Like I put in, um, some low dose naltrexone, which is, uh, uh, it's a pharmaceutical that, that blocks the opiate receptors in the brain and you do a very low dose of it. And, and what it does is for a, a transient period of time, the body is not sensing any of our endogenous opiate production. Hmm. So it ramps that up. And then what it does is it modulates the immune response. It actually has proven to be a really powerful, uh, uh autoimmunity and potentially a cancer, uh, therapeutic. And so for my gut and other autoimmune issues like this low dose naltrexone was a huge boon for me. And it was just another one of these things that I, I dropped in to tinker with, to see how I would, would do with it. But I had some really clear parameters about how I would assess it. You know, my sleep improved, my performance improved, recovery improved. So it's like, okay, yeah, this is a win. Yeah. I think you make a lot of great points. Um, I always talk about self-experimentation and, and like you said, I think it, it nowadays you can be confused. I mean, like I, even myself, and I'm sure you've gone through it where like, you know, you have a podcast, the healthy rebellion, right? Re is it healthy rebellion radio? Right. Um, yeah, which, yeah. which I do listen to, uh, from time to time. And it's like, you guys do more of sort of, um, answer questions and, you know, sort of a Q and a format. But like, for me, I have all different types of guests on, I, I can go from a carnivore to, uh, <laughs> the next week I got, um, you know, someone from bioenergetics, you know, Jay Feldman. Um, who was right. On, yeah. Who was on Brad Kern's podcast for a while. And so he's taught, you know, so and the advantages of carbs, so it can be all confusing. I think, like you said, I think most importantly is, you know, what are you trying to achieve? And, um, and then from there, you know, measure something like take some, do some blood tests and, and things like that. Like I like sort of my experiment going on right now is I did a big blood panel and, um, sort of started impl implementing mainly fruit into my diet and just increase the carbs and the calories. Cause I did find that with fasting and eating one to two meals per day, I was tracking it for a bit. I'm, I just wasn't eating a lot <laughs> enough. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know if you find that, but I'm like getting probably, I was probably getting averaging maybe, maybe 1700. Yeah. I was just going to say 1500 yeah. to yeah. 2000 calories. Yeah. But you know, not but going throughout my day, not feeling hungry, really, right? Just right. And waiting and having maybe a, a meal in the middle of the day, which is like eggs and avocado and cheese, and then have a bigger meal the last. And that was it. But I was like, God, I'm just not consuming enough. So now I've been implementing a third meal, which has been interesting and mainly fruit in that meal, um, mm. maybe, and maybe some cottage cheese or yogurt. You know, some quality. My wife actually just made made our own cottage cheese. I'm like, why don't we learn how to make this? Because it's pretty expensive to buy, like a quality right. cottage. Do you guys make your own 
uh, like yogurts or cottage cheese or not. Well, now you're not doing dairy, but um, I still do for my kids. Okay. And uh, we actually just so I do fine with a uh, goat dairy interestingly so yeah. i think it may be that like a1 a2 right. deal but we just uh in the fall got a line on some good goat dairy and so we we started doing some some uh goat yogurt primarily yeah yeah have you done it with uh the next step is there's a farm about 45 minutes away from here and i used to buy raw dairy uh raw milk a bunch and that's the next step is to do it with the raw milk right right yeah that's what we were so, doing and, and you know um for me any type of bovine dairy other than like cream and butter gives me problems but like sheep goat camel um, can you do raw me are, true, you like are, you, I, are you fine on raw uh the bovine dairy no like okay. it, it doesn't okay. matter if it's it's raw oh, and it. milked by the dalai lama yeah. or you know it's <laughs> it, it, it bovine dairy i i just um and probably because of a a lifetime of dairy exposure plus some gut issues. Like I've just allowed that kind of molecular mimicry, like cross reactivity to, to set up shop and, and be a problem. I can't really do eggs much anymore either. Like I react to eggs. Oh, so interesting. Yeah, yeah. 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 So I guess go, going back to, to your points is it, it is sort of an, I, you hate to say this, but people ask questions like, well, it depends on, right. That's a, depends on who you are. You're, and like even right. genetic profile, like I, I did a, I did a gene test a while back and I have some, um, I don't know if I say mutations, but like I have some gene snips that are, I am not as good assimilating saturated fat as other people, mm -hmm. individuals, mm -hmm. um, which was interesting. Cause I talked to someone about that. He's like, you might want to cut back, not have maybe a ribeye every other night, <laughs> you know, have a leaner cut of meat, which I don't enjoy as much, but, and just see how that that plays out so it is such a nuanced thing right right and i i do i've been really um not suspicious but underwhelmed by like the the a lot of the quantified self stuff so like you do your 23 and me they give you a readout like i i i i haven't found very much of that stuff all that helpful you do a, a gut microbiome test and your gut biome changes constantly like right. you're when you take the gut microbiome test you're taking a picture of what is a movie you know for for one thing and so right. i've been pretty underwhelmed with that but there's there's a little bit of stuff on the on the periphery um gosh what are they calling it the the not the oligosome but um it's basically where they're using some machine learning and they're taking everything your genes your lipids, your mm. gut microbiome. Um, if you can track some things like uh, uh, basic inflammatory markers, and then you plug in your HRV, but this stuff is still mainly happening at the laboratory level. Right. But the, there are folks that are able to then, once they plug all that data in, let's say you're just tracking HRV daily, they can tell four or five days before you get a cold when you're starting to get the cold. You know, so they'll start seeing some changes happen. It's like, oh, this is consistent with, you know, the pattern where somebody's been exposed to a cold virus or, you know, COVID or something like that. And so you should take XYZ steps to, you know, zinc, ascorbate and vitamin C and this and that and the other. And, and you're able to kind of stamp that out. I think the next five or 10 years, we will start seeing some legitimate 
insights from machine learning and doing some of this quantified self stuff, but the, thus far I've been really underwhelmed with it to date. I've found the predictive value to be really kind of piss poor relative to just getting in and doing some self-experimentation. You know, it's, it, it's like, do I do better with or without some carbs, you know, and the, the right. time spent tinkering with that would provide more um, benefit, you know, the three weeks spent tinkering with it than the genetic testing and, and, you know, uh, uh, you know, fizzing over, well, what do I do with this now? You know, it's like, well, you still need to get in and experiment and see what it does clinically. On that point, why don't we talk about some of maybe the, 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 the measurements, um, that are worthwhile to people because you can get caught up in all this, you know, these, like you said, microbiome tests and things like that. I know you mentioned HRV, maybe explain to some people who don't understand what that is, what, what that is and how they can measure that. Yeah, heart rate variability is this measure of literally the the chaos mathematics of the heart. And a healthy heartbeat under at rest conditions will um, it will speed up and it will slow down in this kind of uh, uh, fractal chaos mathematics kind of kind of pattern. And and this was discovered largely in the old Soviet Union when they were looking at cosmonauts and like their adaptation to stress. And it what, what's kind of interesting there is that a well-trained, healthy heart at rest has a lot of variation. It'll speed up, it'll slow down. But then when you start training, if you start doing some exercise, it entrains to the workload that you are are you know putting out very, very precisely. And it, it really matches that quite well. Whereas an unhealthy heart, like when people are are nearing the end of like congestive heart failure, at rest, that individual is highly metronomic and, and, uh, uh, they, they have no chaos variability or very little chaos variability in their heart rate. And if they're exposed to any type of work demands, ironically, the, the heart rate becomes kind of erratic and, and chaotic. It, it doesn't, uh, match the, the work demands all that well. So HRV pretty broadly is a measure of our total allostatic load, like our total stress load. It's kind of a one-stop shop for getting a sense of psychological stress, sleep stress, um, uh, you know, uh, workload stress, and, and it kind of nests all under that heart rate variability score. And this is another one of these things where I think the early iterations of tracking HRV, um, weren't that great. And even still like, uh, like I like the aura ring. I, I I like it a lot. I think it's a fantastic tool, but that thing would drive me crazy because I, I would uh, sit down in the evening and start reading a book to start winding down. And the aura ring would sense me reading the book as uh, thinking that I was going, trying to go to sleep, but I didn't fall asleep. And so then it would ding me. It would uh, negatively uh, impact my sleep score saying that I had sleep latency. And so then I would take the aura ring off, put it on my my nightstand while I read, and then put it back on when I went to sleep. And so I had to start doing these mm. kind of weird workarounds and, yeah. and stuff like that. And currently I use this uh, platform called Morpheus to to track HRV and also to use while while I do my my physical training to keep an eye on what my heart rate is during the the training session. And I think that it's it's just in the last ten years these platforms have uh, improved so 
just remarkably. I mean, the user interface just on our phones are are so much better than what they used to be. But I think even their ability to kind of um, sift through the tea leaves a little bit, like uh, coaches that that use HRV to to work with athletes, frequently they will stop telling the athletes what their HRV score is for that day because it doesn't always one hundred percent tell you. People will start performing based off of what their HRV score is. And so it's like, oh, your HRV score doesn't look that good. And so people will, you know, underperform and stuff like that. So you can use it really broadly to get a sense of trends. Like if you are peaking for an event and your HRV score goes from green, you know, you've been green, 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 and then you get orange, orange, red. It starts, you, you start getting this trend that you're getting into overreaching, overtraining, which can be perfect if you're peaking for an event, you're like, okay, I'm going to string together four days of overreaching and then I'm going to taper and then compete that, that may be a, a perfect thing, but HRV just broadly gives us a sense of where we are on a recovery perspective. Got it. Yeah. Cause I was using the whoop for a while yep. there. Yeah. So that, that does it. There's quite a bit of these wearables now. And, and like you said, you can sort of, I don't wear it anymore really, but Cause it's like, it gives you sleep scores and stuff. And you're like, God, I felt like I slept well and it's time. Right. <laughs> so I, I think with, you got to take those with a grain of salt. Would you agree with yeah. a lot of those? It's just like, you know, best, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I think that they're again, uh, a good coach or when you get used to looking at that stuff, um, you'll use it to track trends, but you don't do, uh, you know, go by gospel with it. And one of the challenges that I see is that people will start doing kind of squirrely activities to try to like max out their scores and, and they'll just do all kinds of funny, weird stuff, you know, to try to get a better score. And it's not necessarily doing anything to improve their recovery. They're just kind of finding whenever there's uh, parameters to a game, people will figure out how to cheat the game, you know? So, right. but, but then, um, you know, folks like Peter Tia, who I, I really respect, he's super smart. Uh, he makes the case that like, uh, he is far more diet compliant when he wears a CGM, a continuous glucose monitor, which is another one of these, these interesting tools. Because he, when he has the CGM on, he documents it into his Excel spreadsheet every single day. And he just lives and dies by this beautiful flat curve. And if he cheats on his, you know, off of the, you know, what he, what he expects himself to be eating, um, it screws up his Excel spreadsheet and it makes him crazy because he's kind of a neurotic, you know, data geek. And so for him, he finds that he's way more compliant wearing his CGM, then he's not because there's actually some oversight there. And he's neurotic enough about wanting great numbers that he he's far more compliant on his nutrition than he is without it. Like if he's not wearing the CGM, it's like, oh, the kid's birthday cake and this thing and that thing end up going down the pie hole because it doesn't get documented. And so he's much more likely to uh, deviate off plan. Yeah, that makes sense. And even just simple documentation of just writing by keeping a journal or yeah, you know, just logging your food um, in a chronometer or whatever. Yep. I think yep. I think that can go a long way. Even if you just do it for a few weeks, just to see where you're at. That's kind of the funny thing, and like, I, I, this is why I've been hard pressed to really get excited about too many of the wearables. Uh, with the Morpheus platform kind of being the exception because I wear it while I I train, and I find really great insight with that. But um, 
I find that people get some benefit from these things for a couple of weeks, maybe a month or two. And it's kind of like, eh, you know, like you, you got out of it what you needed. And that's not really what these wearable companies want you saying. So right. They want you. I, right. I, yeah, yeah. 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 Cause I, I use the CGM for a while and it's like, I still have a few in the whatever, you know, still have a few to put on. They, packs. Yeah. 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 They last for two weeks and, um, it is, it, it is interesting. Um, and that sort of leads to sort of my next question. And we were getting into it is some other markers maybe because I just did a bunch of blood work and people might be asking, well, you know, what should we measure? Um, and what, what would you say some of the, I have some thoughts on it, but what would you say some of the main, um, panels that individuals should, should look into? Yeah, I, I have some good friends who run this, this thing called precision health report. And this is very similar to what we used at the Reno risk assessment program, which if folks aren't familiar with that, this was 10 years ago now almost where we uh, did a program trying to find uh, police and firefighters at high risk for type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And we used this thing called an LPIR score, a lipoprotein insulin resistant score. And so it tells you your LDL particle count and it looks at some other uh, parameters like, um, uh, uh, some stable inflammatory markers that are different than C-reactive protein. It looks at some advanced glycation end products and it, it, it's, uh, they've been able to dial this thing in and they, they've, uh, correlated it with like the craft patterns that people have talked about, you know, with like blood sugar responses and whatnot, but it gives you like a 95, 98% accurate 10-year risk profile for both uh, cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes. And I really like this thing because it's, um, I think the consumer cost on an uh, on the LPIR score in this, this uh, uh, lipoprotein risk index is something like 110, 120 bucks or something like that. Like it's pretty cheap. And it, uh, if if nothing else, I think it's something to establish a baseline. Like, you you know, maybe you check that every two years or something like that to just see if you're maintaining or, or if things are kind of going in a squirrely direction. And if folks are eating a lower carb diet, if they're doing some intermittent fasting, like a one meal a day, not infrequently, people will find that their lipoproteins and their cholesterol go sky high on that. Like Dave Feldman is, is characterized it as the lean mass hyper responder. And I, I love Dave. Dave's a great guy, but I, I asked him and he, part of his theory around that lean mass hyper responder story is that he's suggesting that because these people are fat adapted, that the lipoproteins are increasing to provide more energy transport. And I asked Dave how much of the energy that we could experience could be represented by lipoproteins. I did some back of the envelope math on it and it's not that much. Like it's a rounding error compared to triglycerides and glucose and, and whatnot. I think what's going on there is that folks might have some subclinical hypothyroid from, from maybe a little too low calorie, a little too low carb and, and just bumping, uh, uh, 50 grams of carbs a day instead of like five grams of carbs a day can, can cut lipoprotein and cholesterol levels in half for, for a lot of folks. So I like that, uh, precision health reports, uh, program in that it, it just provides this really concrete view of our metabolic health it, and it's, they have great reports. You understand it really well. Each report is reviewed by a a living, breathing physician where they, they actually, you know, <laughs> give you an yeah. interpretation on it. And so I really like that. And I mean, 
doing hormone testing is great. There's a lot of different stuff that you could do, but I am really biased towards that um, LPIR score, precision health reports uh, uh, data, because I think metabolic health is kind of our most important asset that we could cultivate. And this thing gives you a damn good insight into that. And, and uh, again, even folks that may be insulin sensitive, but are... Um, getting some really elevated cholesterol and lipoproteins from a, a low carb diet. Uh, maybe you ditch the heavy cream out of your coffee and you do more olive oil and nuts. And all of a sudden you, you end up fixing that problem or you do more monounsaturated fats plus maybe 50 grams of carbs, 75 grams of carbs. You still feel just as good as what you did at the 30 grams of carbs, but your cholesterol and lipoproteins are cut in half. I, I think that, it's a really great tool for being able to figure out a lot of stuff like that. And it casts this huge net, you, you know, as far as whether you're high carb or low carb, it gives some really great insights into where you are on that metabolic health spectrum. Yeah. It's interesting. You brought that up because I actually, after our first conversation, I did it, I did one and I was just looking through it. <laughs> yeah. They, and I remember they did a, um, um, they do a call with you, I believe. Yep. after like yep. a, like a consult you're seeing this there's another company called Merrick Health um oh, okay yeah Merrick Health um it's it I did a full panel through them and then you do you could do a consult and they can make recommendations from there so it's it's interesting these companies are 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 popping up um my actually a personal question for me is you know what I've noticed and this is on every literally every blood test and when even when I just do um occasionally like the, the, uh, CGM and stuff is my fasting glucose is like always like, not always, but like one Oh five, like last night. I, okay. I, yeah. It's like, it's interesting. And I don't know, I don't know if it's a gut thing. It could be a gut thing. I don't know what it is. Um, do you, but, have you checked your A1C as well? Yeah. A1C's like, I was actually just, I just pulled up blood work. I got done. Um, yeah, here, actually watch this. Let's do this. I'll share, I'll share the screen. And if people watching on YouTube, they can, I can, they can see, let's see, here we go. This one. Can you see that Rob? Yeah. 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 And this so, is from this, this other outfit. Uh, this was actually just done. This was through Merrick. I did this through Merrick oh, Health. Okay. And then I, okay. and then I had a buddy of mine who does a lot of functional blood analysis, put it into his sort of optimal, you know, cause mm. it's like, you know, the functional, the ranges that you get, and this is another whole topic, but right. The ranges that you're going to get from a normal blood test that you do, they're going to give you these ranges that are for just like the general population. Right. Um, and so these are these functional ranges on the right are more for like, I, I would say like getting it to be outcome optimal, I guess you could say. Um, right. Let's see I was, um, and this, what, this is what also made me think about getting a little bit at adding some carbs in is, um, looking at the thyroid, just a smidge low. Yeah. 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 Just a, yeah. a smidge low. And he mentioned, uh, getting some whole, whole food carbs in there and seeing how that helps. And, and they also mentioned, I did a hair mineral test and this is on your company as well, which got me into doing, adding some LMNT along with a few other things. Um, but I was a little bit dehydrated as well. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. testosterone, not bad, right? Yeah. Six, yeah. 626. Um, and the free is, is pretty solid. Um, I, I didn't see an A1C in there, which yeah, I'm going to go, that, my, 
wait, that no. would be the thing that would be interesting to to know um you know because our our uh that Dude, fasting three month sugar. That, right the the, yeah. the here's the glucose the fasting glucose and i know fasting glucose is you know fasting insulin's probably the more important piece imp to look at yeah, yeah which should yeah. be here unless we didn't put it in here um oh, oh, there it is 4.1 which is a little high it's a, it's higher than what you would you Oh there's would H, there's this. A1C okay okay yeah that's higher than what i would like for sure so that that's some interesting stuff and and what's uh What's intriguing about that is, you know, in low carb land, people will be like, okay, we'll quit eating broccoli because the fiber in the broccoli is causing the problem. And it's like, <laughs> no, like that, that, no. Um, right. What folks oftentimes miss is that if we are eating in a way that is stressful, then the liver will still dump plenty of glucose into our system. If, if it's sensing that we're, we are under stress and this is what interestingly where under eating, eating too in, in, infrequently. Um, I'm a big fan of of time restricted eating and whatnot, but all of these things can be stressors. And right. when we start daisy chaining, you know, low carb plus intermittent fasting plus one meal a day, like at something that could have been, and, and again, it depends on the person. Like if you were 70 pounds overweight, type B computer programmer, pretty sedentary. That might be a great protocol until you get down to the level of leanness that you are at now. And then that is maladaptive now. Like you might need to eat more, more frequently to, um, to just, uh, tell your body like, Hey, we're good. Like we're not actually starving. Like we're, right. we're plenty of food is coming in and we don't need to be in a stress state and whatnot. And so those are the things then that I, I think you start looking at. And it, it's funny, this, uh, I don't agree with a ton of the repeat stuff, but I, I think that they're onto something and that a lot of folks end up under eating. And this is, a, you know, in this weird circularity deal, low carb is really easy to under eat on, which is one of the benefits of yeah. using it as a tool to, to lose body fat initially, you know, and to, uh, uh to potentially restore metabolic health. But if it's, taken too far, then it, it, it could be maladaptive for the individual for sure. Yeah, no. So I, 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 um, I agree. I think, like you said, these are all stressors and that's something that, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to do blood work. Let's see, this was done. I don't have a date on it. Um, it was done like three months ago, four months ago. So I'll probably do another one maybe in a month and see, you know, where everything's at. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, since I've had Jay on, I, I decided to go down this route and just see how, how it would affect, um, you know, thyroid function and things like that. Right. Right. I think that's smart. And, and it's, uh, I think the really important thing there is that you have kind of a, a known concern and then you're doing a specific intervention right. and the hypothesis there is like, maybe I'm under eating, maybe I'm under either calories or carbs or a combination. And if that's the case, then we should see an improvement in thyroid and we should see and before any of the uh like statins and even like zedia the stuff that that sequesters cholesterol in the gut and we excrete it in the feces um ages ago uh folks were sometimes prescribed low dose thyroid if they had uh, high cholesterol levels because uh, thyroid really dictates a lot of what's going on with our lipoproteins and and cholesterol so mm. you, so we've got a good hypothesis there that we can test 
And then, you know, at the end of this thing, okay, you've bumped up calories, five, 600 uh, calories a day. You're eating, you know, hundred, 110 grams of, of carbs, your sleep improved, your HRV improved, your thyroid bumps up a little bit and your trigly uh, triglycerides maybe go up a tiny little bit because your triglycerides were like super low, but then your lipoproteins, your it's specifically like the ApoB LDLP ends up plummeting. And it's like, oh, okay, we, we were on point there. The the bugger sometimes is like, no, none of that worked. It didn't do a goddamn thing. <laughs> and they're like, oh, okay, what, <laughs> what do we do now? You know, but yeah, yeah. And I wonder too, like, I, I think I would, wouldn't you say like three to four months of doing this, like that protocol that you just spoke of is probably a, a good amount of time to, to, yeah. absolutely. I, I think okay. like 30 days for most okay. people is usually long enough. If, if one cool thing about Dave Feldman's work, uh, looking at these lipoproteins that I think it opened many folks eyes to is that, um, the lipoproteins are way more labile, way more changeable than what anybody really thought. And, uh, you know, I guess some of the caveat with that is like, uh, somebody losing significant amounts of body fat, their blood work can look like garbage when, when they're really offloading a ton of, uh, fat and cholesterol and, and their body is shifting into this kind of, uh, uh, fat burning centric mode because of, of cat, some calorie restriction, uh, in, in the clinic that I'm, I'm a part of it still in Reno, we used to do initial blood work and then we would work up a plan for people. And then we would do blood work at three months and, and six months. We ended up ditching the three month blood work because frequently at that point, people looked horrible. Mm. And, and so, and they would kind of get freaked out. Whereas at six months, everything starts normalizing and looking a little bit better. So um, I, I think that the month is usually enough time to get a snapshot of what's going on. But again, we have to have a little bit of context there. Like if somebody's losing huge amounts of body, body fat, we may see things worse at, at the three month point. And so we may actually, you may check it again, but, but uh, have the understanding that when you're really going through this massive transformation, things may look worse initially versus, versus better. But I don't think that would be the the situation with you. We should be able to get a sense of that within like eight weeks or something. Okay. Yeah, that's what I figured. So I'll probably do one here in the next month and we'll see. We'll see how things uh, improve, you know. Uh, but again, going back to everything, it's like I think it, it's just important to to know where you want to go and then have a measurement, do measurements on yourself. And, and you know, it's it, it's, it's a bit it's a bit of a guessing game with all this. But there's so many, you know, it, there's so much great testing out there now. It's like, yeah, <laughs> with precision health reports and, um, you know, you name it. Um I guess uh, fr from that standpoint, let's talk a little bit about because um, one of the things that I, uh, came up with me and even with my wife is uh, dehydration. Mm -hmm. um, and I think and it's it's interesting because I talk to a lot of people now that do hot yoga, you know, and everyone's like, oh, drink water, drink water, drink water. Let's maybe touch on like how important minerals are. And I know which, with your company, LMNT, that was part of the reason why you started it. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, it's it it's interesting when you look at hydration with the try to go into it with a fresh set of eyes and what i i did when we we i became aware that that electrolytes were probably a way more important feature for a lot of people particularly folks on this kind of lower lower carb side of the the eating story um I cracked open a Guyton textbook of medical physiology and this was an old one like I had it in my undergrad like I I 
forget which edition it was, but it, it was published in 86 or something like okay. that. Maybe, maybe 90, some, some, somewhere around there, late eighties, early nineties. Um, but I, I looked, looked up hydration and, and it defined hydration as both the body water, but also the electrolytes that associate with, with that water. And somewhere along the line, we've just stripped out the electrolyte part of that story. And it's only been about fluids, you know, and, and water intake. And when we think about like our, our, the way that we produce energy for everything, whether it's a nerve impulse, muscle contractions, you know, we have that Krebs cycle, TCA cycle, electron transport chain, all of that stuff is largely driven by the modulation of sodium potassium pumps. We've got more sodium you know, outside of cells, more potassium inside of cells. There's this gradient that's created. And the return of that gradient is how we make action potentials to, to fire muscles, to fire uh, neurons. Um, uh, calcium and magnesium are players and all that stuff. But really the sodium and potassium are kind of the, the, the real workhorses with this. And there's no, the only parameter that I can think of physiologically that is as, tightly regulated as electrolyte status is pH. Like if, if somebody ends up unconscious in the emergency room, the emergency room physician is going to look at blood glucose because, you know, maybe they're in a, a hypoglycemic event. They're going to look at blood pH and they're going to look at electrolytes. Uh, what's interesting though, is that our blood sugar can vary over huge magnitudes and we can still live. Like it's not good for us to have a blood glucose of 400, but we'll We'll survive that at least uh, transiently and whatnot. But um, pH, if it varies up or down just a little bit, you'll get very, very sick or die. Um, electrolytes, the same story. So along the line to getting out of whack with our, our you know, kind of optimized electrolyte status, you start getting a, a decreases in cognitive function and fine motor skill in, in, uh, you know, heart, heart activity, you know, the, the correct fluid, uh, balance within the body will cause the heart to contract in kind of an optimized way. It's kind of like a, uh, a trampoline being bounced and sprung, you know, like the preload of the heart and all that type of stuff ends up getting optimized with a correct fluid balance. So, those electrolytes, it, it, it's funny for so much of my career, I kind of knew that they were important, but it was, uh, I would look at a million different things before thinking about sodium and electrolyte status in people. And it was a complete afterthought to even think about this. And then in talking to some friends of mine that are really good coaches and clinicians in it, it, just working with people day to day, uh, they really put this back on my, my radar and another one of the things that I, I dug up was this uh, reality that like low carb diets, fasting, intermittent fasting, there is this process called the naturesis of fasting, the loss of sodium due to fasting. Any type of diet that takes us from a higher glycemic load to a lower glycemic load. And the funny thing, this could be a vegan diet. Like if you're eating a standard American diet and then you shift to like chickpeas and lentils and stuff like that, your glycemic load is going to plummet. Your insulin load is going to plummet, even though it's still a, a fairly high carb diet. And you will lose a bunch of sodium as a consequence of that, because your, your, your body tends to retain sodium in lockstep to our relative uh, insulin levels. And so 
again, I know I kind of bounced around a lot on, on all that stuff, but the, the electrolyte status is just so damn important for, for how we, we look, feel and perform. And the, the kind of cool thing about it is that if one is a little bit off in electrolytes, especially sodium, like if you just do six ounces of pickle juice, like you're feeling a little off, you feel like you might need like a, an espresso before you go work out or something, you do six ounces of pickle juice. You mix up a little bit of, uh, you know, a half a teaspoon of, of salt in some water, maybe put some potassium chloride in there too, or do something like element that has uh, sodium, potassium, and magnesium in it. Five minutes later, you feel markedly better. Like you, you, you're like, oh, I wasn't hungry. I wasn't needing caffeine. What I needed was some salt and, and then everything starts working. So that's been kind of a, a cool feature of our success is that when people try element, if they're feeling off, they end up feeling better within like five or 10 minutes. And so there's this really tight feedback loop that I haven't really experienced with any other type of type of supplement other than maybe like taking caffeine or something like that, where you really, okay, yeah, I definitely noticed this. Like I take creatine, but I don't know that I've ever noticed a, a change right. one way or the other. <laughs> like uh, uh, when I look at the clinical data on it, it's neuroprotective, it's an antioxidant, it's good for muscle mass as you age, there's all these benefits to it, but I've never yeah. noticed taking it or not taking it. I just take it because it's cheap and, you know, the data suggests that it's probably better to take it than not. Whereas if, if I'm uh, a little, I, I can't tell you how many times, even since founding the company element, um, I'll be feeling like shit around like 1 PM and I'm like, Oh, I'm kind of tired. I don't know if blood sugar's off. And my wife's like, have you had any electrolytes today? And I'm like, damn you, you know, and I'll go mix up a batch and, and drink it. And then I, I feel better afterwards. So it's a, it's a simple experiment. And again, it doesn't have to be element. It could be pickle juice, could be your own homebrew, like whatever you want to do with it. But it's one of the most profound levers that I've found that people can pull in feeling better uh, almost immediately. And maybe the only people that aren't appropriate for that is if, if somebody's hypertensive, like if they are, do have already a high blood pressure, it's not really going to help them to, to add more sodium to the mix. But that said, if the person does any type of nutritional tinkering where they, they lower their glycemic load, they're probably going to need some electrolytes on the back end of that when they get more metabolically healthy. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it, it's probably for most people, but, but more importantly, people probably who are really conscious about what they're eating, avoiding the people that are avoiding the, the, the high sodium fast food products. And, and the people that are maybe working out and doing hot yoga and sweating a lot and outside, mm -hmm. those are probably the people I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sure you're, you know, I don't know what percentage of your customers are like that, but I'm sure that's a high percentage. It, it, it is. And the funny thing is that 85% of the sodium that Americans consume comes from processed foods. Right. So then if you shift to a minimally processed diet, your sodium intake plummets and your glycemic load plummets which means that your need for sodium likely dramatically increases. And it, it, it's interesting that in traditional cultures, like my wife's Italian and they have all these, uh, you know, like pepperoncinis and olives and salami, like these, these salty right. things that are usually on the periphery of most meals. And then with the, within like Japanese cuisine, they, uh, in Korean kimchi and different types of salted fermented foods, um, miso. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of these traditional cultures don't really salt the main part of the meal all that much, but they have 
super salty side dishes, uh, the, the chutneys and stuff like that in Indian food, where you just add a little bit to the meal because it's basically like, you know, super spicy flavored salt and, you know, mixed <laughs> in with a little bit of, of vegetables. And so I think even in traditional cuisine, there's been that answer to that, you know, like the main dish oftentimes isn't that salty, but some of the, um, uh, accompanying, you know, side dishes are oftentimes really, really salty and people end up balancing the meal out that way. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I was just telling you before we went on, I bet my pre-workout is we have like a coffee, you know, I make quality coffee, right. Um, with quality beans, organic, and, and then I'll put, put it in a shaker bottle with a bunch of ice and throw in that element chocolate salt. And it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty like legit. Pre, yeah. That's my pre-workout. I'm not like wired, you know, like I, I've had a few guests on like Menno Henselman's and some individuals, and it's just the studies behind these pre-workouts is really honestly, you probably just need a little bit of caffeine if you want and, and you're off your go. Right. Like, right. I think, right. A, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of money to be made in that industry. So there's a lot of these pre-workouts, but I think if you keep it simple, do a salt with some caffeine and ready to go. Yeah. Luis Villasenor has, has advocated for the the same, largely the same thing. Like if you want a little bit of like whey protein in it or, or something like that, maybe a little bit of MCT, uh, I think that there is a, an interesting case to be made for some um, uh, branch chain amino acids from uh, like a whey protein in that peri-workout period, but, uh, you know, some sodium, little little bit of caffeine. And the funny thing is a little bit goes a long ways. Like the kind of optimized dose for most people on caffeine is closer to like 40 to 50 milligrams, which, you know, like a standard Starbucks cup of coffee is like 200 milligrams. Mm. So like people would be optimized doing like a quarter of the caffeine that they typically do, but that's a, that's a tough sell to get people to change that for sure. Right. Yeah. Um, gosh, well, this was great. Uh, I guess before we wrap it up, um, anything new with you, as far as your routine, I know you said your, your eating routine has changed a little bit. Um, workouts. I know you're doing jujitsu. It's interesting. I don't know if we talked about last time, but like I used to do Muay Thai for a long time. I still mm -hmm. do it. And I was like, God, should I get into the ground game and do uh jujitsu and uh, thoughts on a 40 plus year old getting into that? <laughs> well, you know, I, uh, a lot of it depends on the school, like uh, yeah. the school that uh, straight blast gym, the, the organization I'm a part of. And th this is for, for the folks that own gyms, whether it's a strength and conditioning facility, CrossFit facility, or, or martial arts, um, if you run it like a fight club, it's going to be really, really difficult to make ends meet. Like there aren't that many people that compete right. and, you know, get after it. And if you create an environment, especially if it's got a beginner's program and on ramp. So like in, it, uh, straight blast gym, you would, uh, start with a, what's called a foundations program. And it's like an 18 class deal where you learn the legit basics mm -hmm. and you're not doing open rolling with people. You do a little bit of positional sparring and then, uh, your coach kind of watches you. And when you have a basic understanding of the, the overall flow of jujitsu, then you're usually given an opportunity to attend what's called a cap class. It's a combat athlete, uh, program class. And the first three or four session, uh, roles that you do is with a black belt and they're teaching you some etiquette. It's like, and usually the etiquette is slow down. <laughs> don't hurt me. 
right. don't hurt you, you know, you know right, and all, right. all that type of stuff. So if you have a good school that that does some stuff like that, I think that folks can plug in at, at any point. I'll be 51 in a, in a couple of months. Uh, in theory, I'm knocking on the door to my black belt. And so, I mean, I've, I've been chipping away at this stuff pretty consistently for 10 That's years. Yeah. Um, Jiu-jitsu is always hard but it can be done in a way that isn't um, brutal and exclusionary. Like we should be able to, to make this work for just about anybody at any, any uh, point in time. I, I did Muay Thai uh, back in the day too, and absolutely love it. Still do love doing like uh, pad work with a really good person yeah. who can hold pads. Well, you know, it, it, it makes me look like I actually know what I'm doing when I have somebody <laughs> who really knows how to yeah. hold pads. Um, right. But you know, the jujitsu is cool in that, one of the things that I find is that even in a well-run school, which makes things more reasonable, jujitsu is just hard. And and this is maybe true of like a CrossFit gym too. CrossFit's hard. It's, it's fucking hard, you know? And the people who stick around are good people. Like they're used to doing hard things. They're used to suffering. And there's a certain ego trimming that occurs when you go in and you kind of get the shit kicked out of you day in and day out you it's have like a little humbling. win here and a little win there you know, right. it's very humbling yeah and the the community and the closeness that i think grows out of something like that is so profound and so important like during covid uh, you know like having that community that i could lean into was uh, uh, a mental health lifesaver for for me because i am a a reasonably social person but yet i work from home i live in a rural area like i right. could if i wanted to not see another human being for months at a time <laughs> i could do that and yeah. i would i would kind of go crazy so i i really uh, uh where do you live where are you on the just planet? outside chicago you're outside chicago mm -hmm. i don't oh how far are you from uh oh gosh what is it um woodstock chicago okay oh woodstock so woodstock that's farther north. Oh, it's farther um, north. But not, okay. yeah. I, is there is there a place you know of? There's a friend of mine, Dave, okay. uh, uh, Alpha BJJ. The funny thing, like Dan Hart is a great guy, but those guys are kind of savages. Like they, um, I don't know that they run exactly the school the way that I, I, I'm like describing it here, okay. but it's a really one. If it wasn't an onerous drive, like I would recommend those guys and I would call Dave and be like, listen, don't murder this guy like he's a, a good dude. So, but I think if you you look around, some characteristics of a well-run school, they have a kids program. They have morning, noon, and night classes. If the school only has night classes, it's almost guaranteed to be kind of poorly run. They're really catering to like the the retired D one wrestlers that that want right. to continue doing grappling and stuff like that. Um, but it, like if they have a noon class, if they have morning classes, they're running it like a real business. They're professionals. Usually the noon and morning classes are the professionals. That's when the police, the the doctors, the nurses, th that's usually when the professionals end up training because they're able to go in before work or they, they go in during a lunch hour or something like that. And when you go in to kind of check the place out, do they have some older folks in there? Like, right. the, you know, do they have some people in their 40s, 50s, 60s and, and stuff like that? And I think that's a, a great indicator of, of a well-run school. But um, I mean, those are the big things okay. that I've been doing. I, I've really been uh, doing a lot of work in the regenerative ag space, you know, trying to to uh, talk about this idea. Like there's a, a notion out there that grazing animals, cows are the most injurious 
part of, of climate change and that they need to be shut down at all costs. And I, I don't think that that's accurate. And that was where, where the whole book and film Sacred Cow came from. And, and there are claims that, you know, uh, uh, animal products are, are super injurious to our health and they're unethical and everything. And so I do a lot of work trying to unpack that. And maybe I'm crazy, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I, I do think that these topics like climate change and global health and all that are really important. And if they are important, it's critical that we really understand what the true story is there because we have limited resources. And so if we're going to do something about this stuff, we should probably focus on the stuff that that is really important. And I, if you want to improve an area's land, improve its carbon sequestration and stuff like that. I think that actually grazing animals are a really powerful tool if used properly. And mm. so that's what I've been spending a ton of time is fighting mm. that battle. And I, I have to say when, when it's all said and done, I will have probably made about $3 an hour writing <laughs> um, the, the book sacred cow and, and pushing and promoting that there's uh, uh, we, we keep, having people say you guys are shill for big meat and i'm like man i'm, I'm waiting for the payday because it, it hasn't happened yet but uh that that's a lot of the time that i i put into is is working on that type of stuff that's cool yeah and you're seeing a lot of those companies pop up like there's a few companies i order meat from like force of nature and mm -hmm. i know you do stuff with white maybe white oak pastures right um yeah 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 and uh i guess one closing question would be like I probably asked you this the last time, but we'll see. If it's, I'm sure it's a different answer. What would you give a tip to an individual that's maybe looking to get back into shape? Maybe they're in, you know, middle aged and looking to get their body back. What first step would you give that person? One is like, congrats for recognizing that you're you're at the beginning. You know, maybe you're right at middle age. Um, it's kind of funny in that that is the like, it's almost cheating getting into health at, at middle age, because mm. you're still young enough to really get in and kick some ass. You're still young enough to make some massive improvements and you didn't use your body up in your youth, you know, like your back's right. not screwed up <laughs> from powerlifting as a teenager. Um, you didn't break your nose three times doing Thai boxing and have a, a, you know, detached retina. Like I've, I've had, so you're entering into this thing potentially with kind of a fresh slate and you could really like kick ass the rest of your life. The, the, the research on the, the middle-aged person getting healthy is that it's as good or better as, as if you had been fit your whole life. Hmm. And I would like when you, from a health and longevity standpoint, God, it, even for smokers, like if you can get people to just quit smoking, um, Five years downrange, their their likelihood of all these diseases, lung cancer, heart disease, it just falls off a cliff. So body, even if yeah. we've abused ourselves, even if we've done all this stuff and you're like, man, I, I, I haven't taken good care of myself. It doesn't matter what you've done. It matters what you will do. And it it's like cheating in a way, because when everybody else is on this downslope, it's like you're putting on muscle, you're getting lean. And at this point where like a lean fit middle-aged person, you're kind of like, oh shit, like mm -hmm, mm -hmm. he or she is like kind of impressive, you know, like it really stands out. So, uh, you know, I would just commend people for recognize and really encourage them, give it a year, like fucking commit to it for a year, like really, and look at what the return on investment is. 
see how you look, feel, and perform, see that, you know, how much better you do in your body, see how much better you do as a parent or a grandparent or in your work or what have you, you know, the extra energy you have and just like the, the, the enjoyment that you have in your body. And I think you'll stick with it for the long haul. And then what you decide to do isn't nearly as important as just doing something. But, mm. but that said, I think doing a little bit of strength training, and if that means like a machine-based circuit deal that you do a couple of times a week, that's great. Uh, doing a little bit of low-intensity cardio, you know, more days than not, if you can pull that off some way, that's great. And then once or twice a week, something that, that really gets your heart rate up, that that really challenges you, but it doesn't need and probably shouldn't be like a CrossFit workout every single day, you know, the yeah. white buffalo in the sky. But once a week, once every 10 days, like doing something, you were like, wow, that was a dose. Like I really felt that. I feel it in my lungs. I was breathing really hard. Um, that is just a, a remarkable recipe for effective aging. Like you're probably going to live a long time and live healthfully. And what we what we understand from the the uh, the life and death vectors around that is that those folks tend to live really well, and their health span tends to extend out. And then they maybe get sick or get injured in the, you know, what ends up being the last couple of weeks of their life. And and then they're, they're done. And in the, for someone who watched my parents die over like a 30 year period where my dad, mm. I, I did diabetic wound care on my dad and, and like they took his toe and part of his foot and all of his foot and a total below the knee amputation and just the frailty and the loss of the ability to do all this stuff like it's horrible. It's horrible for the yeah. people around you. And, and it was terrible for him. And so, um, getting old sucks, but it sucks a lot less being in shape than it, than it does not in shape. So I, I would just encourage people to get in and do it and, and really, um, look at it as you cheated the system. You, you you slacked off the early part of your life and <laughs> and uh, and you're probably going to get away with a coup because you can get all of the benefit as if you had been in shape your whole life for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. Those are all great points. And I, I love how you, you, you are correct in the sense that like, you know, now, I mean, I've been lifting and I'm sure you've done, I've been lifting for 20 years and like, I'm in the gym yesterday. I'm like, God, I'm like, what's going on with my thumb? What's going on with my finger? Like these little things that probably if you just start when you're in your middle age, you're not going to have those little things. You might, but you're probably less prone to those. Nicks. Right. Right. <laughs> um, but you go, you get through them. Um, but no, those are great points. And then sticking to, to it for like at least a year, like you said, like, I think that's the one big thing a lot of people do is they, they're like, Oh, let's get going. You know, we're getting the new year coming up. And it's like a month or two. And then, you know, they even go too hard for too quick. And then they end up just falling back into their, as opposed to just yeah. going slow for a long period of time. Yeah. 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 All right, Rob, this was great. Um, I appreciate you coming on best place for people to find you. Uh, robwolf.com is where most of what I, I do, uh, still pops up. I do a fair amount of writing for element. So drinkelement.com. I, we have a great science yeah. blog over there and we cover all kinds of stuff, not, not just, um, electrolyte related, but fasting and, uh, intermittent fasting, uh, different takes on, on nutritional approaches. So, uh, drinkelement.com and robwolf.com. Perfect. Yeah. I'll put those in the show notes and, uh, thanks again for coming on Rob. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, man. Take care. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. 
I understand there are millions of other podcasts out there and you've chosen to listen to mine and I appreciate that. Check out the show notes at briangrin.com for everything that was mentioned in this episode. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend or family member that's looking to get their body back to what it once was. Thanks again and have a great day.